The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To a pastor's conference for Indian pastors without going to India. So um, they've, uh, there's a, a group of Reformed pastors and they get together and have somebody teach via Zoom on Fridays. And so this coming Friday, it's my turn. And so I'll teach on uh, preaching Christ within the whole counsel of God. And uh, so just if you could remember to pray. Thankfully, um, all of them actually speak English, so uh, no need for a translator or um, me to have to try to speak uh, Hindi or whatever they speak. What do they speak in, in, in India? Hindi? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Every block. Okay, that could be complicated. All right, well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we get to a a new chapter, and we're thankful for that, and we're thankful to be done with uh, tongues and prophecy. These are familiar words. Chapter 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, among first things, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Well, this is, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, what is often called a, uh, a classicus locus. That is, it's a Latin phrase used for um, the most epitomizing text on a certain subject. Okay? The classic text. So 1 Corinthians 13 is the classic text on love, right? So um, Romans 8 is the classic text on the security of the believer. Romans 9, classic text on election. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic text on the resurrection from the dead. In fact, um, this is a favorite on Easter Sunday, of course, and uh, for, for good reason. Now, what's interesting is, um, you remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's Supper, right? 1 Corinthians 11 is the most detailed, thorough passage in the New Testament dealing with the Lord's Supper, right? It's the classicus locus on the Lord's Supper. Why do we have 1 Corinthians 11? Because Paul wanted to write a nice treatise for the church on the Lord's Supper, Because of abuse, because of error, because they're doing all kinds of awful, hideous things like getting drunk and eating all the food before the people that had to work hard all day could get there. Absolute train wreck, right? So Corinthian catastrophe actually gives us one of the richest passages on the Lord's Supper. Same thing is true about this passage. This passage is going to give us detail, argumentation for the resurrection, argumentation for the resurrection of Christ, the nature of a resurrected body, okay, all because of the rotten Corinthians. So what drives this passage is the false teaching of the Corinthians, 
Just like the false practice at the Lord's Supper drives that passage, the false teaching of the Corinthian church is what drives 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, if you look, you can see it summarized in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the problem right there, is that there you had some in the Corinthian assembly who were arguing that the dead are not raised. Now, did the Corinthian church have moral problems? Did they have sin problems? Did they have ethical problems? Absolutely. I would say the most dangerous thing that was going on in the Corinthian church wasn't the immorality, wasn't the ethical problems, wasn't taking brothers and sisters to court. It was right here, a denial of the resurrection of the dead. The reason why that is that is the worst part of a messed up train wreck of a church is because it is that that actually not just chips away, but is an assault against the gospel itself. Okay. There are things that Paul has to deal with as an apostle And there are times where he has to defend his apostleship and to straighten out bad practice and to straighten out bad doctrine. But the thing that was the most dangerous in any of the early apostolic churches and is true to this day is when you start denying things that actually impinge on the gospel. There will always be immorality in the church, as sad as that is. There will always be greed and covetousness in the church, as bad as that is. There will always be sin and factionalism in the church, as bad as that is. But if you undermine the gospel and don't have the gospel anymore, you don't have a church. And so Paul actually starts this epistle, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5, with the centrality of a a crucified Christ as the center of the gospel. He starts this letter with the gospel, and he ends this letter with the gospel. And so for Paul, there there is a sense where... Um, he is. <laughs> he deals with all these issues in this church, but look at what he bookends First Corinthians with: Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. Okay. In other words, he bookends uh, a, a a church that is an absolute wreck with the gospel, and that is a reminder to us of what the church continually needs. The church continually needs the gospel. Luther used to say that the church is always within one generation of losing the gospel. I think Paul was painfully aware of how easily Christians can drift from the gospel. And so, this, by the way, this is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, by far. It is the most detailed argumentation that you see in this letter. So, uh, an overview of the, um, of the chapter. So, uh, the first 11 verses, the gospel and the sine qua non, sorry for the Latin, I don't know what got into me today, of Christ's resurrection. Sine qua non is the without which nothing, right? So it, it's, it is the essential non-negotiable thing, right? So you have the gospel and the absolute essential, the without, with, the without which nothing resurrection. 
Christ isn't raised from the dead, nothing else matters. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, nothing else is true. So that's going to be the first 11 verses. Absolutely fascinating, great stuff, and we'll dive in. And then the, uh, the middle section, 12 to 34, Paul's defense of the resurrection of believers. Now, we're going to talk about the error that the Corinthians were positing, and there's no reason to think that the Corinthians were saying Christ wasn't raised from the dead. What the Corinthians were saying is we're not going to be raised from the dead. Paul says, basically, in this middle section, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, 12 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We should be pitied. If we believe in this gospel and Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we should be pitied above everybody else. People should feel sorry for us. 20 to 28, Christ has been raised and believers will be raised. These are just um, simple synopses of of Paul's argument, right? On the one hand, if the dead aren't raised, Christ has not been raised. Christ has been raised, believers will be raised. And then uh, 29 to 34 of this section, uh, we we just call this uh, pragmatic arguments. And uh, we will get to the ever uh, elusive theme of baptism for the dead. Okay. I don't suspect that we'll have it figured out by the time we get there. All right. Um, but it is an interesting part of the argument. All right. <laughs> we won't start. It is a practice, by the way. Then what ends up being, in a sense, sort of the most fascinating part, 35 to 58, is Paul then talks about, in a sense, the the nature of a resurrection body. How are the dead raised? And uh, by the way, the argumentation is easy to follow. How are the dead raised? And Paul's answer is actually simple, bodily. Bodily. So you are going to be raised bodily from the dead. And then 50 to 58, the resurrection, the death of death, and Christian ethics. So by the way, this whole chapter is absolutely uh, stunning from beginning to end. It is really absolutely marvelous. So let's uh, talk for a second about how the Corinthians came up with the idea that Christians are not going to be bodily raised from the dead, physically raised from the dead. So um, we're doing 1 Corinthians 15 in the Greek class on on Tuesday. So uh, those that are there will know some of these. Uh, Are there groups today that teach that Christians won't be raised from the dead? That there's no future bodily resurrection for believers? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about like wackos like that. I'm talking about a different kind of wacko. Absolutely. You can say, yeah, there are. Um, in fact, uh, there's a group. They are known as uh, full preterists who believe that Jesus returned in AD 70, not bodily and that we're in the new creation, and the Christians are not raised from the dead. Guess when that started? Guess when that heresy started? All the way back in the apostolic times. Going all the way back to the times of the apostles, there were people that said, hmm, Christians aren't going to be raised from the dead. Now, Where in the world would this come from? Some people have suggested that uh, Jewish opponents had kind of crept in and who had embraced the Sadducean heresy. You guys know about the Sadducees, right? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? Therefore, they were Sadducee, okay, right? So um, 
very, very, very unlikely that you have a Sadducean influence in Corinth. Really very unlikely. Uh, others point to um, uh, basically Greek philosophy that, uh, that, that taught the um, mortality of the body and the immortality of the soul. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's related to um, what's sometimes called a Gnostic dualism, where uh, spirit is good and matter is bad. Okay. So in Gnosticism, um, the, the reason the Gnostics didn't believe in uh, the incarnation is because to them it was absolutely inconceivable that God would take on human flesh. So human flesh, of course, is part of matter and and it's mortal, right? And so it passes away. Um, and so uh, a Gnostic dualism would see the body as being uh, the inferior part of you. Okay? So things like uh, the body is the prison house of the soul. By the way, you do know, and we'll get into this as we, as we travel through 1 Corinthians 15, but you do know that Christians have a biblical theology of the body, right? The physical body. And here it is in a nutshell. It's good. And God created it good. Sin has spoiled it like everything else, but listen carefully, your redemption is not complete until you receive the resurrection of the body. And the reason is, is because the resurrection of the body is the, is the consummation of the redemption of the whole person. So here's, here's something just to beware of. Christians often uh, uh, inadvertently fall into sort of a Greek philosophy of looking at the body as if it were bad. And this, by the way, in this physical world, as if it were bad. And, um, and, and that really what God is concerned about is the soul or the spirit. And so heaven is just a disembodied soul going into the presence of God. By the way, that is not at all the ideal state for a Christian. Paul calls it the period of nakedness in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord is good for a Christian in the intermediate state, but the tent being taken down, which is the body, actually the hope is what? That God raises that body back up and reunites it to the soul that he made. And the redemption of the human being is the redemption of the whole human being, including the resurrection of the body. So the body's good. It's the last thing to be redeemed. And, by the way, this fits into... The, the, the notion of this world, this world that, uh, that God created, he is going to, at the end of the age, refine it by fire, but the new heavens and the new earth will be a recreated earth. God does not discard what he created. He redeems what he created. We have this, we have the very uh, Gnostic view of heaven and the eternal state. Here's, here's something that ought to um, at least um, wake you up a little bit, and that is the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, you included, will be profoundly physical. It will be spiritual but it will be physical. Thanks be to God in the redemption of the body, God overturns the, the curse and reverses all that is fallen about our bodies for which we're thankful. Okay, It's not like, you know, 
you get stuck eternally with a bad back, God will fix it. Okay. I, I think, I don't know for sure, this is, this is speculation, but I think you might even have hair in the new creation. It's just a guess. I don't know for sure. <clears throat> All right, so what in the world's going on in Corinth? Well, you have, um, flip over actually real quick to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, we've talked about this uh, uh, multiple times as we've gone through um, Corinthians. So <clears throat> the Corinthians had a, a view that we could call uh, sort of an over-realized or a, a super-spiritualized spirituality, right? So they thought, <laughs> you know how we talk about the already and the not yet? They, they had a view that they were already in the already or the not yet. They were already in the not yet is what I mean to say. Right, so th- th- like they are um, um, almost angelic. Super spiritualized, all right? Now, we'll tie that into the resurrection here in a second, but notice in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, uh, back up to verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Men who have gone astray from the truth saying the resurrection has already taken place. And what resurrection do you think that Paul's talking about? The resurrection of Christians. Okay. It's already taken place. And they've upset the faith, faith of some. So I, I understand the error in, in Corinth to be something like this. Um, probably... You could describe it as an over-realized okay, eschatology so that the not yet is more present now than it really is. Uh, you could probably say that in, in that perspective, by denying the bodily resurrection, they were probably arguing, um, we've already been raised. We've already been raised. Now, have you been raised from the dead? Yes, you have. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been raised from the dead. John 5, 26. Okay? But what, what kind of resurrection was that? It's a spiritual resurrection. Okay? Being made alive, being born again, spiritual resurrection. Raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. Okay? So let me ask the question again. Have you been raised from the dead? Yes. No. <laughs> you, you understand it's, it's yes and no. Right? And here's, I mean, I just look around and see the vast evidence that you've not been raised from the dead. Okay, you're getting older, more decrepit. Some of you have illnesses. All signs you've not been raised from the dead. Okay, have you been raised from the dead? Yes, spiritual resurrection by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Have I been raised from the dead? No, not yet. What the Corinthians probably were doing is they were putting so so not not yet. They were probably saying. It is so much a reality right now that the resurrection's already happened, so there is no physical resurrection. So where would they get this idea? It's hard to tell. Maybe it's a a combination of Greek philosophy and spirit and matter, and uh, but certainly this this super spiritualized view that we've already seen, where they minimize the importance of the body. You do know that the Corinthians have already done this. If you, if you just think back to chapter 6, remember the Corinthian slogans. In chapter 6, you had a Corinthian slogan. 
food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food and God will do away with both of them. Now, by the way, if you remember back to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's not going to be so crass as to put the Corinthian bumper sticker theology into the way that they were living it out. But you do understand the implication of just saying food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food and God's going to do away with both of them. In other words, the physical body is limited and God's doing away with it, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. The Corinthians could have lived by a slogan like this. The body is for sex and sex is for the body. God's going to do away with both of them, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body right now. So the very idea of Um, God is going to do away with the body, so it doesn't matter what you do with the body. By the way, leads to uh, one of two things, either on the one hand, asceticism, right? Sort of like living like a monk or a nun. And and then on the other hand, libertinism, which is uh, indulgence of the flesh because it didn't matter anyway. Now, what do you think the Corinthians probably gravitated towards, at least, you know, Uh, quite a few of them, well, they probably gravitated towards the libertinism, but you get over to chapter 7, and guess what Paul has to tell married couples? He has to tell married couples to actually give each other, as the Puritans put it, I realize there's children, so I'll put it the way the Puritans put it, do benevolence. In other words, the husband doesn't have, some of you are like, what does that mean? Come and talk to me later, and I'll give you uh, some marriage counseling. The idea in 1 Corinthians 7 is the wife does not have the right to withhold her body from her husband, and the husband does not have the right to withhold his body from the wife. And then so the question is, why does Paul actually have to talk about that? And the answer is, I think, in all likelihood, because you had some in the Corinthian assembly that were so super spiritualized that they were living in sexless marriages, believing that that was a higher and holier existence. And so Paul says, no, you physically belong to each other. By the way, the end of chapter seven in that passage that the New American Standard absolutely butchers. ESV does a much better job talking about the betrothed. It's very possible that what's driving that teaching at the end of chapter 7 regarding the, the, the uh, literally the man and his virgin was the idea that, that um, Corinthians were, were actually trying to dissuade people from getting married. And Paul actually encourages them at the end of chapter 7. Why would you dissuade somebody to get married? I mean, besides obvious reasons. <laughs> well, you could try to dissuade people if you were sour on marriage, right? Right? You ever had somebody just sour on marriage? Ah, don't get married. Stay free. What if you had a worldview of super spirituality? Celibacy is the way to go. By the way, does this ever take hold in the church? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, The entire Roman Catholic tradition of the celibacy of the priesthood. So celibacy was seen as a higher, higher state of spiritual living so you could imagine so it's not as if the corinthians don't have things indicating that they already had a very low view of the body by the way low view of the body and by you can see this actually even um even in some of the church fathers you see this where you have a low view of the body and then you also have get this a low view of physical 
uh, uh, intimacy within marriage, right? So the higher state is celibacy. And then you also, unfortunately, end up having a lower view of women. All of those things were present in, in, in some of the early patristic uh, church fathers. So the Corinthians are, they're thinking this is the way that you live a holy life, right? Well, you have to understand that um, all of that's a bunch of nonsense. There is such a thing as a sanctified earthiness, a sanctified celebration of earthiness. Not worldliness, that's different. A sanctified enjoyment of this life as God has given it as a gift. The the gift of marriage, the gift of children, the gift of family, the gift of labor, the gift of, of, of living in a, yes, a fallen world, but it is, uh, there's a sense where the reformers, to, to a large degree, not altogether completely, but to a large degree, restored the idea of the sanctity of all of life before God. All of life was quorum Deo. All of life is lived in the face of God. So all of life is sacred. All of life can glorify God. And so there is a sanctified earthiness. An enjoyment of what God has given. It is, it is people that are, that are uh, super spiritual that ruin the sanctified earthiness. Okay. By the way, unfortunately, many even within our own tradition end up saying things about this present life and uh, present relations that end up minimizing these things as gifts of God. We see it sometimes in our hymnody. We see it sometimes in even some of uh, our beloved Puritan forefathers who write um, as if, uh, let's say, too much familial love and affection in this life is a sign of too uh, uh, earthly-mindedness. Absolutely false dichotomy. Absolutely false dichotomy. What's the proof? God's going to redeem it all anyway. He's going to redeem your body. He's going to redeem this earth. There is, there is a wonderful sense in which the age to come is going to be earthiness to the glorified degree, right? You're going to have a job in the age to come. Okay? You're going to work. I'll be out of a job. Jason will be out of a job. Rest of you can work. Now, you won't, be, you won't have motherhood, okay? And there won't be marriage in, in, in the sense that we know. But guess what? Will there be marriage in the age to come? And the answer is yes. Christ and his bride consummate the very picture of marriage. And so there is, this, there is a, a wonderful sense of sanctified earthiness that the Corinthians absolutely, thoroughly, completely missed because they were spirit people. You ever, you ever meet somebody that thought that they, that they just sort of trafficked in the spirit to such a degree that their feet didn't even touch the ground? That was the Corinthians. And so the Corinthians, by the way, gave, gave themselves to both asceticism and libertinism, and it all comes back down to um, a failure to understand the goodness of creation and the goodness of the body. So Gordon Fee says, Thus for them, life in the spirit means, meant a final ridding oneself of the body, not necessarily because it was evil, but because it was inferior and beneath them. The idea that the body would be raised would have been anathema, right? So if this, is, if this thing is inferior and, and really the highest um, mode of spiritual existence is to get rid of it, why would I want it raised? Why would I want a new one? I don't even like the old one. 
And so that's what Paul's dealing with. That's what Paul's dealing with. All the way back to the time when the apostles were still alive. 1 Corinthians 15 ends up having incredible value uh, for both uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a, there is a tremendous uh, apologetic value in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the resurrection, but then also the uh, incredible value for the future resurrection of the believer. And so, a uh, child of God, what you have to look forward to, yes, when you die, if, um, if, if you are not alive when Jesus returns and you die, your soul will be separated from your body, but your soul will go immediately into the presence of the Lord, okay? And that's glorious, right? So our brother Bob Feltman is immediately in the presence of the Lord, face-to-face with Christ. But you know what, what Bob is also aware of? Is that his redemption is not quite complete. And so full conformity to Jesus Christ is not just in his image spiritually, but also in the likeness of his resurrected body, Philippians 3, 20, 21. And so we await the resurrection of the body. By the way, the unbeliever dreads the resurrection of the body. If the unbeliever could stay in the intermediate state, separated from Christ in torment and stay there forever, he would make that choice rather than receive a resurrected body in which he would be tormented forever. Unbelievers get a resurrection body too, but it's not unto life. It's unto judgment. So this passage is incredibly important, and here's, here's the way that Paul's going to uh, try to help the Corinthians is <clears throat> reorient them to the gospel. That's what he's going to do, all right? So let's uh, go ahead and start verse 1. So Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand. Now this little phrase, I make known to you, Paul's obviously not talking about making known to them the gospel for the first time. Okay? In fact, the language can't mean that because he says, I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you, right, in the past. So when do the Corinthians hear the gospel for the first time? Well, in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes and preaches in Corinth and establishes the church in Corinth, and so they hear the gospel. So what does he mean? I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you. It's, it's almost as if this is another way of just saying, I make known to you again the gospel. Uh, I remind you of the gospel, okay? Um, I think the reason Paul uses, let's say, a stronger phrase than just simply, I remind you, okay, I make known to you, is because there is a not-so-subtle implication uh, in the fact that you've forgotten much of it. I make it known to you, what I already preached to you. This goes beyond just mere remembrance. This is, I need to tell it to you again, because obviously you've lost your gospel bearings. And so, um, (laughs) how often do you need to hear the gospel? I make it known to you again and again and again. There There is never a time in the Christian life where the gospel does not need to be made known to you. If you are of the opinion that I've heard the gospel, now I need to get on with the deep things of God and get to uh, uh, gospel's 101 stuff. I want want 401, 501, right? I'm ready, right? Um, I remember when I was a a brand new student at Biola, I went and and I got my my catalog. I'm going to register for my classes. Well, I'm... Still, I'm a, I'm a freshman. I, I don't have enough units to actually be uh, sophomoric yet. And so um, I'm, I'm looking, and of course, I don't pay attention to any of the general requirements 
that I needed, I go straight to the Bible and theology section. I don't pay any attention to 101 classes or 201 classes. I am signing up for advanced eschatology. And I am signing up for all of the uh, elective theology courses that were 400 classes, right? And uh, my advisor looks at my thing and he shakes his head and he says, you know, you, you have to get your 100 and 200 classes out of the way first before you start taking three and 400 classes. I was ready. I was... Uh, I already knew everything anyway. So I was absolutely prepared for the 401 classes. But you don't just jump. So here's, here's the thing is you have, in God's seminary, you have gospel 101 and gospel 201 and gospel 301 and gospel 401. And then you can move into gospel 501, 601, and then you can actually start doing postgraduate gospel courses too. But guess what it is every time? It's the gospel. You never get so smart. You never get so doctrinally advanced. You never get so spiritual that you can say, I'm done with the gospel. It's time for me to move on. Absolutely not only insane, but by the way, people, you, you know people think like that, right? That there's a second level that I get to, uh, okay, Jesus is Savior, I got that down, I got an A in that class, now it's time for me to move on to the higher stuff. You do know that that, that, that kind of thinking is, is fraught with danger. Because the thing that keeps me safe is having roots that go deeper and deeper and deeper in the gospel. That's what keeps me safe. Not getting into the, uh, the, the profundities of, of theology, as wonderful as that is, you never get past the most basic truths of the gospel. Okay? We, we need to remember that. We need to have that preached to us. Over and over and over again. So Karl Barth, not a fan, but uh, he is considered to be one of the great theologians of the 20th century. He was, uh, he was Swiss. He was um, studying in Germany at the time of Hitler. Made his way to America in the 1960s, late 1960s. By this time, he had made an incredible impact uh, through his... Um, church dogmatics, and his uh, commentary on Romans. And uh, many people thought he had actually single-handedly destroyed uh, classic Protestant liberalism. So he goes to lecture at the University of Chicago, and one of the students came and said, uh, Dr. Bart, can you tell us, tell us in a nutshell the most profound thing you've ever learned as a theologian? And Bart looks at him and he says, sure, I can tell you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. No, Dr. Bartz, really? 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 And so how often do you need the gospel? You need it all the time, right? And so Paul says, this gospel, which I preach to you, right? So when we say gospel, I remember you can think of the gospel in terms of of, of you can think in narrow terms or broad terms. So think of it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. The message of the gospel is the message of God's saving promises and saving activities through his son's death and resurrection for the salvation of sinners. That's the gospel. God's saving promises and saving activity through his son, Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, to save sinners. And so the gospel message is, is actually, <laughs> the gospel message has, has really, uh, in, in one sense, nothing to do with what you do. 
Here it is. Three words. God saves sinners. That's the good news. That's the good news. This is, this is the gospel message. And to be sure, there is a, a response to, that is necessary to the gospel. But understand this, the gospel in and of itself is, is a message about God and God's saving activity of sinners. And that's what makes it good news. The gospel's not about my lifestyle. The gospel, will the gospel impact my lifestyle? Yes. Don't minimize any of that. But it is good news. And if it's good news, then it's something that God's done, not something that you do. Understand where you fit in the good news. It's real simple. You're the direct object. That's all you get. You're not the subject. You're not the verb. You are the direct object. God saves sinners. That's the good news. Gospel is the message of the forgiveness of sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you have to appreciate this. So the word for for preach is, uh, sometimes it is a word that is related to the noun gospel. So the gospel which I gospeled to you. Okay. So, okay, you could put it like this. The evangel which I evangelized you, with which I evangelized you. Okay. So here's Paul and he says, so here's the gospel which I gospeled to you. In other words, this, this good news, what do you do with news? You proclaim this news. What do you do with news? You have someone who heralds that news. So in, in, in Paul's world, um, the word that we translate preacher is the word kerux. The message preached is, is the kerugma. And so what is the kerux? He's the one that goes in and makes the announcement. So think of... Um, Think of medieval times, and you had a guy that uh, walks into a little village and bum right? He blows his trumpet, hear ye, hear ye, right? And then he reads, let's say, the decree of the king. He's the herald. It's not that his name is Harold, it's he is the herald, okay? Does the herald have the right to say, the king says, A, B, and C, personal footnote on C. Let me tell you what I think about that. He doesn't get to do that. It's not his prerogative. He has one job, to say what the king says. And for Paul, that's exactly what gospeling the gospel was all about. It was going and preaching the good news that the king had given to him to proclaim. And he would get to go and he would get to herald that message and Here's, here's the thing about Paul. His whole life centered around this idea of preaching this message. That's what his whole life revolved around. So much so that he could say in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. To him, this was, this was the very reason that God saved him. It was the very reason he existed was that he might proclaim God's son among the Gentiles. And so he says, this is the gospel. I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you. And then notice, which you received. In which you stand. So that gospel message is is heralded, it's proclaimed. Behold your God. Your God will come to you with salvation and righteousness. You got the subjects that are hearing. Someone says, 
King Schming. Who cares? I've got work to do. And someone else hears and says, that message is for me. That's receiving the gospel. You hear the good news and you embrace it as good news for you. You you welcome it. Okay? Not everybody welcomes the gospel, right? There are people that think it's nonsense. There are people that, that really say, I'm not going to have Jesus reign over me. Or there are people that say, um, what a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of foolishness. I'm not going to listen to that. And then there are people and they hear this message. God saves sinners. Christ died for sinners. God forgives sin. And they, they hear it and there's something in them that welcomes that message as this is for me. This is not some sort of abstract news release. This is good news for me. Welcome it, receive it, embrace it. The, the language, Paul, we'll see this more next week. The, the language of receive means something that's been handed over or offered. You can't receive, you can't, you can't um, paralambano unless something has been parodidomied. Okay? You, cannot, you cannot welcome or receive unless something's been given. This is what happens in preaching the gospel. You are actually giving the gospel to people for them to be able to turn around and say, it's for me. This is why, this is why a theoretical gospel is no good. You need, you need a personal gospel. You need an experiential gospel. You need a gospel, put it this way, you need a gospel with your name written on it. This is for you. Which you received in which you stand. Mm. In which you stand. Notice, notice Paul does not say, which you received, and the date is in your Bible. Which you received, in which you stand. Right now. So if, if I could purge from people's brains the idea that salvation comes down to a moment of decision and, and what happens after that is somewhat irrelevant, I would, I would purge it as quickly as possible because here's the reality. The gospel which you welcome is the gospel in which you stand. It's not simply a matter of decision in the past. It's a standing place for the present. That's what the gospel is. It's a standing place for the present. And so Paul talks about this grace in which we stand, Romans 5.2. He talks about this faith in which we stand. And so to, to, to say that, that we stand in the gospel is just another way of just saying, the gospel's everything to us. It's not just something that I responded to in a moment's time back in. It's, it, it's where I stand. It's where I live. It's where I move. It's where I breathe. It's where I have my being. I am, I am a, a person whose life is wrapped up in the gospel. It is my standing place. It's the center and the circumference of my whole life. It's the foundation and the superstructure of my whole life. 
you, you, can say, you can say a lot of things about yourself. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I, I'm a construction worker, I, I'm a salesman, I'm a musician, I'm, I, I'm all these things. But you know, you know what? If you were in a car accident, became a quadriplegic, and had to be fed through a straw for the rest of your earthly existence, you might not be a construction worker anymore, you might not be a ball player anymore, you might not play the violin ever again, but there's one thing about you that did not change, and that is that the gospel is the very center of your existence, and it doesn't change. I think of people that go through life-changing events. I think of Vic and Bertie's son. Yesterday he was a husband. Today he's not. Awful. But there's something that didn't change today. Now standing in the gospel. And so, receive it. And stand in it. I got a text right before I came to Bible study, and a dear brother ran into a, some sort of Muslim apologist or something, and he said he was throwing out this verse and that verse, and he goes, my head was spinning, I, I don't even know what to do. I wrote back, stand firm in the gospel. You don't have to have all the answers. Stand firm in the gospel. Believe it. Embrace it. Put your name on it. Christ is, Christ is the kind of Savior that says, I've given myself to you. Holy and completely, without reservation, I'm yours. And I'm yours forever. And you're mine forever. And you may not understand infralapsarianism, and that's okay, because you're mine forever. And you may not be able to do verbal battle with a, with a Muslim apologist. It's okay, you're mine forever. Stand firm in what you know. Stand firm in what you know. J. Vernon McGee used to tell a story about this um, young black kid who went to the First Baptist Church, was going to become, wanted to, wanted to be a member of the First Baptist Church. So he sat down and had an interview with the deacons. And the deacons asked him, what do you know about the gospel? And he says, well, God does the saving, I done the sinning. That's what you need to know. God does the saving, you've done the sinning. Stand firm in a Savior who loves you. And if you want to go into the deep things of God, drill deeper right there. Drill deeper right there. And preach this to yourself, because you need to know it every day. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel message. Father, it is an amazing thing. You you have one son, and you made him a preacher of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the death, the burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the message that Jesus saves. We thank you that our hearts can be refreshed with that even tonight. Father, pray for those that, that feel uh, really crummy about their sins right now. Remind them that Jesus saves. Father, we pray for the comforts of a gentle Savior tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.